today we're starting this new series. Go ahead and put that up there if you would, Gary. Here's what it's called. Bystander John, we're going to talk about John and the rabbi from Nazareth. Or we could call this, we could call it the next slide, is the, the John's eyewitness testimony. Um, the, I just want to remind you of something. There's, there's a couple of reasons, a couple of, of, of ways we decide what we're going to believe in. One way is evidence. Let's say that you were on a jury. I don't know. How many of y'all been on a jury? Let me just see. A few of you have been on a jury. How many of you have watched something that had a jury in it? That may not really be what it's like, but anyway. So if you were on a jury, both sides would present the evidence. Then at the end of that time, you would have to make up your mind about the person's guilt or innocence based on the evidence that was presented. So here's, here's my dilemma, and this is what I wrote down this week as, as I was thinking about this series. I have no doubt, no doubt in my mind that you are smart enough to look at the evidence and to make up your mind. No doubt that you are, you are smart enough. Here's what I don't know. I don't know if you're willing to look at the evidence. My job is to present that evidence, and then you have to make up your mind. Another way we decide besides evidence is we decide whether we're going to believe something based on the credibility of the witness that is presenting the evidence. So Janie and I just started this um, small group on our own. We just started doing this. As I was reading, you know, I, I read books all the time, and I was reading a book called The Case for Christ, and that's by Lee Strobel, who was an atheist. He was the law. Uh, he was the, the editor of the law section of the Chicago Tribune paper. He decided he was going to disprove Christianity. In his study of Christianity, he became, this atheist became a follower of Christ because he said it was so credible. So then I've, there's the case for Easter. There's a case for faith. There's a case for miracles. I've read all of those books. And in those books, he mentions, this caught my, my attention. So he mentioned this guy named Jay Waller, Warner Wallace. And here's what got my attention. He's, it, he's a homicide detective who decided to use his cold case detective skills. So he's in charge of cold case homicides out in California. He was an atheist. He did not believe in Jesus Christ. And he decided he was going to apply his, his um, skills in cold case homicide. He was going to apply that to the Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament to see if they were true. Anyway, he's written this book called Cold Case Christianity. Janie and I have started this this week. And there's just some really interesting things that I wanted to, to share with you from this. Um, I got to get to the right page. Um, okay, so the other day I was reading this book. We'd already watched one of the sessions, so we're doing this small group and we're discussing, you know, about evidence and all that stuff. So I'm reading this after our first small group session. Janie's still in bed, and here's what I read. Um, As a skeptic, I was slow to accept even the slightest possibilities that miracle were possible. My commitment to naturalism prevented me from considering such nonsense, but after my experience with presuppositions at a crime scene, let me describe what he means. When he was early on as a homicide detective, there was an older detective. They went to a crime scene. The older detective said, the husband did it. We don't even need to look at the evidence. The husband did it. And so he thought, that's weird. He's already made up his mind, but he's older. He's been doing this for years. He said, trust me, it's the husband. Interesting thing was, she was not married. There was a guy in a picture that was hugging her that he, the older detective, assumed it was her husband. It was her brother. Anyway, long story short, they chased a husband that did not exist because he had pre-existing notions or preconceived ideas about the evidence. So here's what he says. Um, but after my experience with presuppositions at the crime scene, I decided that I needed to be fair with my naturalistic inclinations. So he starts off and he said, I was an atheist. I said, there's no way that anything supernatural could ever happen. 
And he said, if you carry that into an investigation, you're going to come to the pre, uh, preordained conclusion that, that no God exists. So here's what he says. This, I'm actually going to put this up on the screen. If God did exist, he was the creator of everything we see in the universe. He therefore created matter from non-matter. So he created something from nothing. He created life from non-life. He created all time and space. God's creation of the universe would certainly be nothing short of miraculous. If there was a God who could account for the beginning of the universe, I laughed out loud when I read this. Lesser miracles, you know, say, and this is, these are his parentheses, say walking on water or healing the blind might not even be that impressive. I laughed out loud. Now, I, when I say that, I don't ever put LOL when I'm texting because some of y'all put LOL everywhere. You put it on Facebook. You put it on your text. And I'm like, I read that and I go, really? Because I didn't even smirk. You laughed out loud at that? I think you overuse LOL. So in my family, if I ever laugh out loud, I type out laugh. I just laughed out loud. I'm not going to use that because some of y'all overuse LOL. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting off topic. I laughed out loud because I said, think about that. And I'm just sitting there thinking, and then Janie wakes up and walks out, and I said, listen to this. I just laughed out loud. If God, you know, if there was a God who could account for the beginning of the universe, lesser miracles, right? Because if, if God can hang planets in the universe and have them orbit in certain ways, walking on water is nothing. Healing a blind man is nothing. So if you believe the first four words of the Bible, in the beginning, God. You believe that anything else is possible. And this guy in his investigation of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John said there's overwhelming evidence that these guys are credible witnesses, that they were there, that their testimony is true. So we base our, what we believe on evidence and the people giving the evidence. Now, by the time we finish this series, you will have heard eyewitness testimony to the person and the power of Jesus Christ. And if you're in a court of law, you'd be asked to make up your mind. And there wouldn't be any, well, you know, I hope it's true. Uh-uh. Either he is who he says he is, or he's not. Either Jesus is God, and nobody back at that time didn't believe he was claiming to be God. They actually tried to kill him one time because they said, you claim to be God. So you would have to make up your mind. And let me just say this, not to decide is to decide against the evidence. Because let's say, God forbid, let's say that someone doesn't make it home today or doesn't make it home tomorrow. If you don't make up your mind before your last day on this earth, then you will spend eternity separated from God. That's what the Bible says very clearly. And this is why this is so important. So this is why I want to do this whole series. The reason so many people are easily talked out of Christianity they were never talked into it in the first place. Christianity is a thinking man, thinking woman's religion. There's evidence. Now, what you do with that evidence, that's, that's between you and, and your creator. But there's lots of evidence. A lot of our teenagers go off to college and they hear some professor who thinks he knows, knows it all and he talks them out of Christianity because they were never talked into it in the first place. A lot of our teenagers will go off after they leave the home and they'll read something in a book or they'll, they'll hang out with certain people and they'll be talked out of Christianity because they were never talked into it in the first place. The purpose of this series is I want to talk you into it. I want to show you the basis for what we believe and then leave it up to you to decide if we're telling the truth, if John's telling the truth, that Jesus was telling the truth. So we're going to look at this guy named John. John was one of Jesus' first followers and he wrote the book of John in the New Testament 
and, and I don't know if you know this, but John's last name was Zebedeeson. That's kind of fun to say, isn't it? Zebedeeson. Say that. Zebedeeson. Now, some of you already know that's not really his last name. In that culture, what they would do is they'd say, this John, to differentiate him from another one, we'd say, this John is Zebedee's son, but I just thought I would put that together to see if I got a smirk, and I didn't. It bombed. But if you remember, you did smirk. Thank you. Thank you. But you like dad jokes, so LOL. <laughs> Some of y'all are quick. <clears throat> LOL. No, you didn't either. There wasn't, laugh out loud, there wasn't even a smirk, uh, except for Ryan. Uh, John would tell you that he did not believe in Jesus because of blind faith or because of hope. It's way, 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 way deeper than that. Nobody said to John, hey, brother, you just need to have more faith. Nobody told him that. If that's how you were raised in Christianity, it's highly likely you were talked out of. Someone talked you out of your faith because you were never talked into it. We're not going to talk about you just got to believe. We're going to tell you why. Now, John left his father's fishing business to follow Jesus because of what he saw and what he heard. John was the youngest of the disciples. That's what we believe. We believe that um, he's the only one who died of natural causes. We don't know that for sure, but we, we're pretty sure. And, and by the time John wrote this book, it was between 80 and 90 AD, so less than, than 50 years after Jesus uh, was crucified on the cross. There were all kinds of other books. The earliest book was written within 10 years of, of Jesus dying on the cross, and the earliest creeds we have go back to within just a few weeks of Jesus' death on the cross. So, so there's not enough time. The reason I tell you that, there's not enough time for legend to creep in. In, in any literature, a hundred years is required for legend to creep in. Why? Because living uh, eyewitnesses are still around, and you could just go to them. They say, no, that's not true. So within 50 years, John writes this down. He's the only living disciple we believe at this time. So Peter, first preacher in Jerusalem, he's dead. Paul, the one who, who, who wrote half the New Testament and traveled all over the Mediterranean Sea starting churches, he's dead. The only person that's still alive is John. And John, at the end of his book, he gives us his thesis statement. Y'all remember thesis statements? I hated thesis statements. But if you're writing a paper, you have to have a thesis statement. He puts it at the end, the, the last two verses in the entire book. And here's what it says in John 20, 31. He tells you why he wrote the book. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. In other words, he didn't do this in, in a vacuum. We're told that at one time, 500 people, Jesus' followers, saw him alive at the same time. So he didn't do these miracles in a vacuum. He had witnesses. He did this in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So Jesus did way more than what I'm telling you about in the presence of witnesses, but they're not included in the book. He says this, but these are written that you may believe. John's purpose was not just that you have information. John's purpose was that you believe, that, that you would put your faith in, because he says this, that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and then look at this, by believing you might have life in his name. So here's, here's the bottom line. John wants you to believe and have life. Just what kind of life is he talking about? Life on this earth? No, eternal life. John's saying, I've told you a lot, but Jesus said a whole lot more. I've chosen these specific things as signs so that you can believe in his name. He's not telling us what to believe. He's actually building a case as to why you should believe it. And he chooses seven miracles, and he calls them signs. So we're going to look at seven signs um, in, in the book of John. Now, a sign is something that points to something else. So let me give you an example of this. How many of you have ever stopped at the first sign you see on 155 headed to Tyler and gone, we made it. It says Tyler. Let's dance around. Hey, we made it. And have a picnic because we're at the sign. Let's worship the sign. We not worship it, but you go, yay, we made it to Tyler. Anyone? 
pretty stupid, right? Because the sign says this way. Only a fool would get distracted by the sign when the sign says you got to keep going. The sign points to something greater. So that's what John is using this for. A sign points to the identity of Jesus. It points to the destination. It is not the destination. A sign is not a random act of kindness. Jesus wasn't just showing off. The purpose of the signs, the sole purpose, was to affirm his identity. So the first, uh, the first sign is turning water into wine, and it's the only one that rhymes. The first sign is turning water into wine, and it's the only one that rhymes. Preacher D just came out for just a second. I'm sorry, I just wrapped that. Um, All right, I'm just trying to help you remember. Turning water into wine, it's the only one that rhymes. Here's what it says in John chapter 2. On the third day, third day since what? Well, in in chapter 1, Jesus is calling disciples. He's just talked to Nathaniel, and then it goes into chapter 2. On the third day since he talked to Nathaniel, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. There's different Canas, and this is in Galilee, so this is not far from the Sea of Galilee, not far from Nazareth, not far from Capernaum. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Well, why all these details? That's a whole lot of details. The details are there because John was there. He's an eyewitness. He's telling you exactly what happened there. Now, wedding celebrations, you need to understand this. Wedding celebrations in those days went on for days and days and days, at least a week, maybe more. I'm so grateful to God that Rachel's wedding was one day. Can you imagine the expense if it was a week-long celebration? I mean, we had a great time. It was awesome. She's worth it. But I'm grateful to God that we don't have a week-long wedding celebration because I just can't even imagine. See, since, since hospitality was the center of the whole social society, to, to run out of something at a wedding would be front page headline news in the newspaper, talk radio, would be talking about what a, what a humiliating scene it was for you because in those days, celebrations were just as thought out as they are in our day. They were expensive, they were well-planned, and it was a year from the time they got engaged until the, the, bridegroom, until the groom, bridegroom would come get his bride and, and then they would have a week-long party. You need to understand all that because that sets up what is about to happen. Now, imagine if you're the caterer and this happens. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, if you're the caterer, what kind of Yelp review do you think you're going to get? Not a good one, right? Um, Running out of something so basic at a celebration would be embarrassing. Now, Mary turns to Jesus and she says, she reports it. Now, she does not, this is important, she does not tell him what to do. She, she merely reports the problem. She seemed to know that in a crisis, it's okay to turn to Jesus. Now, this begs the question, what was it like to have Jesus grow up in your home? I mean, like snowpocalypse is here and you don't want to go to Walmart. Do you just say, hey, Jesus, can you do that thing you do and, and whip up some bread from nothing? I mean, you know, I'll turn my back. I won't even watch. Now, I'm totally making that up. Totally making it up because John says this is the very first miracle Jesus ever performed. He didn't perform any miracles before that. The point I'm I'm making is Mary knew that it was okay to turn to Jesus, but she had no idea what he was about to do next. Now, Jesus' response was appropriate in that day, but don't you use it in this day. He says, woman, my brothers are 12 and 14 years older than me. We grew up in a fundamental Baptist church where, where women were not supposed to speak, where women always had to wear dresses. You could not wear pants. We were focused on so many important things. 
But I remember my brothers saying to my mom, woman. And I'm thinking, that is not going to go over well. And it didn't. My mom was, was not the nicest woman. And so they would say, woman. And then when it wouldn't go well, they'd say, we're just quoting Jesus. And I was ducking because I thought somebody's going to get smacked, right? Here's the interesting thing in Greek. And if you go in, if you look on um, Bible Gateway, so at Bible Gateway, you can bring up five different um, translations at one time. This is what I usually do on my computer, so I'm comparing the different translations. Every translation on Bible Gateway. And then I have the NIV that I read every day. And even in my NIV, there's a, there's a footnote next to this woman, the word woman, and it says, in the Greek, there is absolutely no disrespect. So let me explain it this way. If we were in medieval times, it would be, it would be a very respectful thing to say, my lady, or, or let's, okay, let's say it's Mother's Day this year and you're writing your mom a card. My dearest mother, that's the type of greeting that Jesus used. And then he asked her a question. Why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Very formally, he's like saying, dearest mother, I came to save the world, not weddings. It's like he's given her a general reminder that everything, everything, he did was on God's timetable, not his own. And he, the same phrase is, is used in John chapter 7, just a few chapters later, when Jesus made some people mad and he came to them, or they, they, they tried to take him by force because they're going to kill him. And the Bible says they couldn't do it because his time had not yet come. Same phrase. He's saying, it's not time. Everything in his life, whether it, was, whether it was turning water into wine or whether it was being crucified on the cross, was on God the Father's timetable, not his dearest mother's timetable. And he was reminding her of that. Now, this is just me. I think, as a mother would do, she smiles and goes, okay, whatever. Because here's what she does. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. This is important because I think she's saying, well, even though his time's not yet come, I want you to be ready when his time does come, if it does come. One preacher said it wasn't until the wine ran completely out. Now, we don't know if Mary was involved in the planning, but she probably was because she wouldn't have known. There's no way she would have known something so embarrassing unless she somehow knew about what was going on with the catering and all of that stuff. But this preacher said not until the wine was entirely exhausted would Jesus' hour arrive? And if you think about it, if you walked with Christ any amount of time, he never shows up on my timetable. I'm willing to bet he doesn't show up on your timetable. He always shows up on time. He's never early. He's never late. He shows up on God's timetable. And he was reminding Mary, his mother, he was reminding us, I'll, I'll move when it's time. Now, my question is, why would John start with this sign? And, and you got to use your imagination a little bit, but John's an old man by the time he's writing this down. I think he's an old man looking back over his life. All of his friends are dead. Everyone of the original apostles were dead. And I think he looks back and he goes, oh my goodness, this is the perfect way for Jesus to start his ministry. You see, the wedding guests, they didn't know. The servants knew, the disciples knew, Mary knew where, what happened, but nobody else knew. But I think John's looking back and he's realizing that for every follower of Christ from that time till now, this is the perfect way for him to start his signs, his miracles. Because when you look at the big picture, 
Jesus' very first miracle is at a wedding. And he's in charge. And in Revelation chapter 19, it says, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb, the wedding supper of the Lamb. He begins his public ministry in charge of a wedding. He ends the end of time as we are going into eternity. Satan has been defeated. He ends it with a wedding feast. And I think it's the perfect way, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Mother says, do whatever he tells you. Look what happens next in verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind the Jews used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Okay, so I was thinking about this, and I was going, 20 to 30 gallons? How many of you have ever seen one of these at a picnic? About 21 bucks. We have them. We have, we have a number of these, and we fill them up with lemonade, or maybe we fill them up with water. And, and, and have you ever carried one of these that's filled with water or lemonade to the brim? Is it, a, is it an easy job? No. Now, I got to thinking, if there's six big honking water jars, they're probably not igloo. So I looked it up, and, and maybe they were these. Now, this is $300. We don't have any of these around here. I don't have any of these at my house. It's, a, it's actually a six-gallon because Yeti can't just do a five-gallon. It's got to be six gallons. And can you just carrying the empty thing is going to be heavy if it's a Yeti, right? Because it's the real deal. $600. Fill it with six gallons. And try to carry that thing. I want to see it. Film it. Let's, let's have a challenge. Here's my point. So the Jewish water pots probably looked like this. Now notice the little ones. Normal people would have the small ones. Two handles, right? This is a big deal. These were good Jews. They were probably fairly wealthy Jews. And I'll tell you why I believe that in just a second. But, but what you would do is, and, and if you ever go with us to Jerusalem, when we go to the Wailing Wall, outside the Wailing Wall, there's this little um, purification table, and it has one of these smaller water jars. And here's what you were supposed to do. Now, this was not of God. This was what the tradition of the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, the elders said. You would grab the handle with a dirty hand, you would pour on this hand, and it had to go in such a way that the water ran down because if this water ran down as you're purifying this hand and got on this hand or got somewhere else, it was impure because that water was pure. So you grab the handle here, and you pour it on there. Then with your clean hand, you grab the other handle that's not dirty. I don't know what they did in between washings, but that's, that's something else. You would pour it on this hand, and you do all that. Now, if you got dirty before you ate a meal. They did this, the tradition, not Jesus, not God. The tradition said you had to do that before every meal. There's a huge significance to this. Um, Jesus looks over and he sees these water pots. And, and you need to understand, Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. So when he looks at you can go ahead and leave that on there, Gary. I like that. We didn't mean to have that as a background, but leave it there. Think about how heavy those large water pots with 20 to 30 gallons of water in them are going to be. And then realize that Jesus is going to do something. The very first sign, Jesus takes an item that they used in, in re religion, and he's about to give it a new meaning. He didn't do it by accident. These water pots were symbols of the whole Old, whole Old Testament system that Jesus is about to replace. The story continues. Jesus said to his servants, fill the water jars. Why would you need to fill the water jars? Anyone? Because they're empty. That's not a trick question. Are you with me? Hang on. All right. They were empty. So they filled them to the brim. Now, 
There's this uh, British scholar. He wrote commentaries on many books of the Bible. In his commentary on John, here's what he says, F.F. Bruce. The water provided for purification is laid down by Jewish law and custom. It stands for the whole ancient order of Jewish ceremonial uh, law, which Christ was, had, was to replace with something better. This, this miracle that Jesus is about to do is a foreshadowing of what his ministry is going to be like. No one had any idea what was going to happen next because it had never happened before and it wasn't going to happen again, only Jesus. So someone, someone, notice there's a big O. And just in case you don't know who that is, I put it in parentheses. Jesus shows up on the scene. Someone new came with something new. He was going to replace the whole Old Testament system. Now, this someone is not just anyone. This someone split the calendar in two, B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord. And I know people have tried to change that now. They say uh, B.C.E., before the common era, and C.E., common era. They're still referring to the same thing. Jesus split the calendar in two. Now, I say it's before Christ emerged and then Christ emerged, or before Christ was enthroned and Christ was enthroned. And I just say that to mess with liberals who, who don't believe that Jesus. I'm like, he split the calendar in two. Someone new came, and this someone new says this, verse 8. He then told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. We do not know when the miracle happened. We don't know when the water changed into wine. And I think part of the reason is because John, this was such a common story. It was Jesus' first miracle. Everybody he was writing to already knew about the miracle. I have a theory. I think it happened as the, the servants obeyed and started carrying those big, honking water jars to the waiter, I think that's when it changed. And I base that on, I'm in the book of Luke in my personal devotional. I just read this early in the week. Jesus one time healed 10 lepers. And he said, he didn't heal them at first. He said, go and show yourself to the priest. Now, the reason he did that was because if you were healed, you had to go have the priest examine you. The priest would go, you're sure enough, you're healed. You can come back into society. He didn't say you're healed. He said, go present yourself to the priest. And then the Bible says, as they were going, they were healed of leprosy. Can you just imagine? So I imagine that as the waiters, as the servants are taking this to the head waiter, that it changes into wine. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water. Have you ever drunk something that you thought was going to be one thing and it was something else? Like, this really messed me up one time. I thought I was drinking sweet tea, and I got somebody else's cup, and it was Coke, and my taste buds were so confused. It's like, <laughs> even if you like Coke, if you're expecting something else, right? So, so if you don't know this story, you think that the head waiter is about to drink water. Look what happens. He tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Very nonchalant because everybody knew this story. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, this guy's been doing weddings for years, right? He's the head, he's the, he's the maitre d'. And he's like, hey, 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 you did something wrong here because everybody knows you, you do the, the good stuff first. Because then when people are drunk, you can serve colored water and they won't know. A week of partying, give them colored water and say, hey, this is good stuff. I go, yeah, right? He says, but you didn't do that. You did something different. Everyone brings the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you save the best till, till last, till now. And that's kind of the point. God always saves the best for last. Because the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was you had to take something to a priest. The innocent third party 
had to die, had to pour out its blood, and then that would cover your sins until you sinned again and you would have to come back and you'd have to do it again. But this miracle sets the sign, this sets the stage for Jesus to enter into an ordinary life and change everything. He, for, he performed this miracle at a wedding, not at a funeral. He performed it at a home, not at a temple. And he didn't make a big deal of it. There's no flashes of lightning. There's no thunder. It was very nonchalant. And I think this is interesting to me. In Israel, there are shrines everywhere. If they think, so like there's a place where, where Mary supposedly got water from a well when she was a child, and there's, they built this massive cathedral over it, and you can go in and you can pay money to go look at it. It's bizarre to me how they build shrines. There is no shrine in Israel, in Cana, where Jesus performed his first miracle. Jesus went to an ordinary wedding in an ordinary town with an ordinary couple. We don't even know their names. The story that day, and this is what I'm trying to get across to you, the story every day is nothing is ordinary after Jesus has touched it. So Alexis prayed to receive Christ last week, and, and Alexis, you're a beautiful young lady. Don't let anybody tell you that you're not. And now you have the Son of God's Spirit living inside of you. That makes you valuable to him. You're a daughter of the King. Jose, you're not beautiful, but you're, you're a good guy. <laughs> I'm sorry. Kara thinks you're beautiful, but, you know, there's not going to be any confusion when I pronounce you husband and wife. Who's going to kiss you? There's no confusion today when we do that. You're a, you're a son of the king. No matter what you've done in your past, no one can take away from you that you're a child of God. You see, nothing is ordinary once the Holy Spirit of God enters. Jesus always takes the ordinary and makes it extraordinary. Why 150 gallons of wine? Did they need that much? No. <laughs> but here's what I think the significance is. In the presence of Jesus, the supply is always greater than the need. God is a God of extras. God's a God of more than enough. And here's what I want you to know. God always saves his best for last. Now, contrast this. If you know anything about church, some of, some of you may not have ever been in church. If you know anything about church, there's an enemy of God. His name is the devil or Satan, and that actually means the accuser of God's children. So if, if you have prayed like Jose and Alexis did, then you're a child of God. There's an enemy of God who accuses you night and day. The enemy of God always gives you the best first, right? He says, have sex before marriage. Do this. Have drugs. Whatever. Do all of this stuff. And he only shows you the good stuff. He doesn't show you the destruction, the pain that's coming later. And in my mind, it's kind of like whatever it is that you are susceptible to, he will lay in front of you in the most tempting way, almost like breadcrumbs straight to the path of hell. And he hopes that you won't pay attention to where you're going. He hopes that you'll die without Christ and you'll split open the gates of hell. The Son of God always saves the best for last. And, and here's what I want to tell you. If you've never asked Jesus to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, this is as good as it's ever going to get. In fact, it's going to get worse eternally worse if you don't give your heart to Christ.
So live it up because this is all you got and it's going to get worse. But those who know Christ, this is as bad as it ever gets. Even though you might be in the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23 talks about, God is with you and will take you through it. And the best is yet to come. If Jesus can take ordinary water and turn it into extraordinary wine as his very first miracle, imagine what he has in store when we walk into heaven. And John gives us, the same John that wrote this book also wrote Revelation, the last book in the Bible. And he gives us a picture in, in, in Revelation 19. It says this, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, and in, in my mind, it, it is greater than any Super Bowl parade you've ever seen, any World Series championship parade, multitudes and multitudes. And here's what it says. This multitude sounded like the roar of rushing waters. I've been underneath Niagara Falls. There are some tunnels that go underneath them, and you can walk out, and they don't let you get close enough to touch it because some idiot would, and it'd rip their arm off. What I remember is we put on rain suits, and we walked in these tunnels because there's water dripping down. And what I also remember is when you're standing about 10 feet from the end of the tunnel, and you see this wall of water, you don't see anything but water. You don't hear anything but loud rushing. You can't even talk to the person next to you. You have to walk way back in the tunnel, back in the hallway, before you can even yell loud enough for them to hear. My point is there's a multitude so big that it sounds like that, like rushing waters, like the loud peals of thunder shouting, Here's what they're shouting. Hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Now this is the parentheses that's actually in the New International Version. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited. Everyone is invited to this, to the wedding supper of the lamb. And then he added, There are true words of God. Not everybody accepts this invitation. Some would rather follow Satan to hell. But the Lamb has has offered for you to come. Now, what Jesus did in this miracle was more than a sign. More than a miracle, it was a sign. It pointed to someone new who was going to establish a new covenant. Now, I just want to give you just a a brief glimpse. When John started writing this down, um, in in the first chapter of John, we meet John... The baptizer, he would be John Zechariah's son, if we use the same thing, but he's actually John the baptizer. The reason they called him that is because he's the first person who baptized others. John the baptizer, he was preaching and baptizing. When he looks up and sees Jesus, here's what happens. John 1.29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus spoke this to people who'd been sacrificing lambs for thousands and thousands of years, and he said, there's a new lamb. Someone new is appearing, and he's not going to cover your sins until the next time your sins. He's going to take them away, and the people went, something new is here. The story wraps up like this. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs, and what I I mean by this or what he means by this is we're just getting started. We're going to look at all seven signs over the next few weeks. This was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And look what happened. And his disciples, what did they do? Believed. They put their trust in him. Why did they believe in him? Because he got them together and said, come on, guys, just believe. You got to believe, sister. You got to believe, brother. You can do it. No, it's way deeper than that. They believed because of what they saw. They believed because of what they heard. There was a reason to believe. And if you study the Bible and if you stick with us in this series, you're going to discover that never once is anybody asked to believe without evidence and without trust in 
the witness who's bringing that evidence. Nobody's ever asked to believe through blind faith. Even though we can't see Jesus like John did, we can trust in the testimony of the witnesses. John was so convinced, so convinced of who Jesus was that he wrote these words in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, there's your invitation, doesn't matter what color you are, doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John, how can you say such a thing? Because of what I've seen, because of what I've heard. Old man John is looking back at his time with Jesus, and he decided to start his his letter, the book of John, with these words. In the beginning, so before time, was the Word, capital W. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In case you don't know who the Word is, you jump down to verse 14. The Word became flesh. Who's, Who's the only one who entered into this world and became flesh and split the calendar in two, and we celebrate his birthday every December 25th? Who is that? Jesus, the word of God became flesh. And it says he made his dwelling. And this word actually means tabernacle. And this goes back to the Old Testament. The very first church service was in this tent called the tabernacle. It was very elaborate. When the people would move, the tent would move. Eventually it became the temple. But here's the significance. Jesus, the word, came to tabernacle amongst us to show us the Old Testament is done with. There's a new covenant that's about to be established we have seen, this is awesome. Now, we didn't hear about it. Not there's rumors. We have seen that his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John would say, I was just a simple fisherman. I was an innocent bystander until this rabbi from Nazareth changed my life. And he said, so I wrote this down, not for your information. I wrote this down. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I want you to know this at the beginning of this series. There's no such thing in Christianity as blind faith. No such thing as blind faith. My hope is that we walk sign by sign by sign through the book of John. You'll believe and that by believing you may have life in his name because I'm really worried that if no one's ever talked you into belief in Christ, you will be talked out of it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for an opportunity to to meet Jesus, for for parents who wanted me to be in church and for parents who who believed that you're the Son of God and who, who instilled in me not just a belief in Jesus, but that the church is the bride of Christ and that what we do on Sunday mornings matters. So, God, it's my prayer that someone in this room or somebody online, that today they realize that that Christianity is a thinking person's religion. There's evidence. There are eyewitnesses. And maybe they'll take a step towards you. That's my prayer, God. Let people see the truth of the Son of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope you'll join us next week as we continue this journey. We're actually going all the way to Easter. We'll finish this series on Easter, which is the first Sunday in April. So I want you to come back. We have one basket at the back. It is our joy basket. That's how we give at NLCC. Uh, you can give there. You can give online. And I just want to thank you all for your faithfulness through, through, a, through a pandemic.
Um, and, and this reminded me, I, did, I wondered if we'd have eight people. So like when we first had to shut down church, you know, for COVID, um, John and his family were here and my family was there and Gary was back there and, and that's all the people we had. So thank you so much. I, I love John and my family, but it's so much better to have a few more people in the room. And um, Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He did not say, I'll build a certain ministry. He did not say, I'll build a retreat center. He did not say, I'll build a youth camp. He said, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell and the snowpocalypse of hell will not overcome it. We're going to be here as often as, as God allows me to have breath. So I, I hope this happens. I don't know if this will happen. I was thinking about this today. When I'm in a wheelchair and I can't be up here, one of my kids better be pushing my weak old tail in a, in a wheelchair up here to worship the Lord until he takes me from this planet because church matters. Church matters. All right, we're done. Get out of here.